Master, what is your experiment today? Currently, I'm in the process of creating the perfect podcast. Oh, that's wonderful. Will it destroy the world? Hopefully, probably. I don't know. Give me that beaker. Okay. Wait! Something's gone horribly awry. You've given me the wrong solution. Now the podcast will be amazing. Now here we go, jumping science, jumping it all over. Like bumping around the town, like when you're driving a Range Rover. Expanding the horizon, expanding the parameters, expanding the rhymes of soccer MC amateur. Hi. We're about to talk about science on Youth Radio. My association with science is its pretty weak, actually. I didn't like the idea of science when I was younger because I didn't like my world being explained to me. I wanted to explore it on my own. I didn't really have a very good idea of what science was, which is exploring a world. Lately, I've been getting more interested in it, and I'm finding it to be quite to my taste. I have a very strong interest in science. I hope to be a scientist hopefully like a physicist or something and i to comment on what she said i used to think that way and i know a lot of people do that science um kind of takes the beauty out of things by explaining it but i think it's kind of the other way around actually by knowing exactly how it works and the beauty of the little intricate details it really it really highlights how amazing it really is science is the bomb diggity fresh that's how i would put it when you just got out of physics class, for example, and, and you're riding a bicycle, and you think about all the, the, the science that is happening, all the formulas and equations that go into you pressing the brakes on your handlebar and then stopping in front of a stop sign, and then the cars that are doing the same thing, and that, that movement, that inertia, all that, that energy that's happening is a part of science is, is really amazing to me. It's, it's astounding to, to think about the world we live in and, and to analyze... Everything, anything that falls, all these little things that you take for granted, that you, you are able to know, uh, like properties, you're able to know scientific laws just through intuition, but you don't know them until you heard, you've heard them vocalized to you. And then there's this clicking moment. That is another, another really incredible thing, I think, that happens uh, with science. I guess I usually think of science as two things, uh, the method and then applied science or technology. I generally don't like the second part, but I do find the first part uh, theoretically interesting. I think when I was younger, I found science much more romantic. Like I found, you know, I really love Carl Sagan and his, the ideas about how spiritual science can be and how, you know, how learning about the universe can, he talked about it in a very like loving way and how it really kind of can replace the same feelings that religion, you know, supplies for a lot of people. I'm extremely fascinated by science as well, and I think it's it's one of those things I loved when I was a kid, and I don't think about it much uh, as I'm older, but when I do, I'm still extremely fascinated by it, and I think the insanity of things existing, it's just like when I actually try to, like, wrap my brain around something as simple as, like, looking at my hand moving around, like, grabbing something and being like, my brain just talked to my hand... It did the thing I wanted it to do, and somehow I exist and move on my own. 
you know, we think really mechanically because we build things. So we think of like what's in our like capability to build, like building a car and be like, well, it works because there's this this gasoline we put in and there's gears and stuff. But then I'm just like, I'm just walking around and all I did was eat some broccoli and it makes me walk around, able to walk around and pretty, pretty impressed by that. Yeah, I've never really been extremely interested in it. Like all of you guys said, it's just... Yeah, been my least favorite subject in school and all this stuff. But I mean, I'm sure it's really interesting. If I just have never really had a good science teacher or never really been taught that it's awesome, you know. So I've always dreaded going to science classes and stuff because it's boring to me. But I probably just haven't been taught how awesome it is. I grew up with um, my dad. He's always worked somewhere really sciencey, like. He used to work at Lily's, so he helped make medicine. My brother went to college and ended up being a um, biochemist. And so I guess I just kind of grew up with everyone being really good at it. And then I got in high school, and I didn't do so good on it. But I still really I still really like to talk about it, obviously. I don't know. I just grew up with, like, really science-positive people. interested in science um, the more that I realized like how much a part of me it kind of is already which is really interesting because I was so repelled by it at first um, but a lot of the like mentalities that seem to be around it um, I agree with a lot and like that like the huge appreciation of the world and like when I was little I just freaked out about everything like all the time I was just like oh my gosh like grass like everything is amazing and I remember like asking my parents and being like why are plants so organized like why is everything so put together in this way that everything seems so careful and like I it's just really interesting and like it's a part of everything and it's a way of looking at the world and it's, the whole thing is just really interesting. I do think it's important to point out that science is not something that's out there. It's something that we use to understand other things. I guess that was the, the distinction I was making before. Because I think that we like to think of the world as being organized, but we organize it. It's not necessarily an organized thing. I see science as a way of understanding and explaining, you know, the phenomena in our world, in our, in our universe. And I think when I was in high school and in college, you know, when I was taking science classes, I was much more interested in, you know, the the technical understanding that came with it. But I think what I've come to realize is that as I've gotten older, I've just, I'm less interested in kind of understanding the, you know, scientific and rational aspects of things and more interested in understanding or interpreting the meaning, you know, in a more like metaphysical kind of way or like in a more artistic way, reacting and interpreting the things in our universe. And so I think it's like, I know that it's possible to do both and to that there are poetic ways of talking about, you know, scientific phenomena. I feel like it's either you dedicate your life to understanding and explaining things scientifically, or 
you dedicate your life to interpreting them artistically and kind of finding different, more more abstract and personal ways of kind of documenting creatively your reactions to the universe. It's like there's not enough time in the day to do both almost as much as much as you can spend some of your time you know reading and doing your own research and taking time to understand these things at the end of the day you need to decide whether you're going to be spending your time in the technical aspect or in the creative aspect i'm i feel like i'm the only one that's just not really excited about (laughs) i don't know i feel like it's it's probably really awesome but (laughs) i just think that as from my experience, once you start to try to understand one thing, it leads to another and leads to another and leads to another. It's like this whole process and goes on forever and you're never going to understand everything fully, but people will try. It's not really emotional at all. It's more of like mathematical and logical. I don't know. But I like seeing things, I, I guess seeing things just without science or just, I don't know, having your emotions dictate what you think of something is a lot easier for us to comprehend and a lot makes me feel better i guess if i'm trying to make sense of everything it's kind of i guess humbling do you look upon the universe with wonder in your eyes do you tingle with attention when you're taken by surprise if a problem should perplex you does it put your brain in gear then you're ready for adventure on the science frontier I think about science, I think, especially when I play sports, like basketball, um, specifically, is my sport of choice. Um, but when I think about all the angles and degrees that are, I, I, like when I'm shooting the ball and stuff, and, it's, and when I'm, I'm banking it off off the glass, I don't know, I can't help but think about it. And, and the inertia of the ball is it's like going through air and it's velocity and uh, the, the arc and, and all that stuff as it goes. It's it's. It's really incredible to me. It makes it that much more satisfying when I when I hit that perfect shot that that goes like straight through the net and didn't hit anything else. Uh, thinking about the science behind that is incredible to me. The fact that I can do that, and then you extend it to yourself because then you start thinking about how your muscles are the ones that are are powering the ball and everything scientifically that goes into your muscles. The fact that you, like you said, you have to eat broccoli, and then your your body uses that and uses the carbohydrates, or I don't know how many carbohydrates are in broccoli, but I'm sure there are some at least, um, and converts it to energy with the use of the mitochondrion or whatever, and then you you it's. I don't know. It's just really incredible from from that perspective. However, when you get better and better at playing a sport like basketball and you're trying to score points, you think less and less about the individual specifics and the details of what you're doing. You don't think about, like, flex muscle, move hand, turn ahead, look, point ball at 30 degrees. You're like, shoot ball, move body. You know what I mean? It becomes, or like, sometimes you just think, score a point. Right, well, and it becomes you don't think anything at all, you don't think anything at all. Don't and think it becomes. Sometimes I will, I will find myself wondering. I mean, obviously, I can't calculate the degrees or the angle specifically with like just looking at it. But to some extent, you can feel that to a certain extent, and that's that's how you know how to shoot the ball correctly or whatever. It's that your body is able to pick up on these things, and your body is able to feel feel that 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 weight or or inertia or or momentum, and and can. You you've learned to react accordingly to these these rules that govern the world, and I think the fact that you that I have uh, something that I can use to define that and and use to explain that is really amazing to me. That's the stuff like the uh, kinematics, the that branch of physics and of 
of motion and energy. And it's really, I mean, it's amazing that things exist at all and that things have come into existence that can think about existence. And by that, I mean us. And it's really amazing. And then it's even more amazing that there's this entire branch of physics, you know, just just last trimester I was calculating trajectories of balls and all this stuff and shooting stuff all over the place. It was really it was really amazing. And then it was even more amazing to realize that my brain just does that on its own. Like walking is immensely hard. It's it's like one of the hardest things to do. There's a reason our robots can't do it and we just do it without thinking. And then it comes like I I juggle and I have become quite good at throwing the balls exactly where I want them. And that is the kinematics. That's physics right there. And my brain just does it without thinking it. I don't need the equations. I don't you know, need all of this stuff. I just do it. And the fact that our brains can just use that and they're so good at it is just amazing. Don't know much about history. Don't know much biology. Don't know much about a science book. Don't know much about the French I took. But I do know that I love you. And I know that if you love me too, what a wonderful world this would be. What do you think about the fact that all of the all of the equations and the science that you use in like high school physics to try and calculate how things move is based on Newton, which was then totally disproved by Einstein? So how do you account for the fact that you use you come up with these models to explain the world and then they're replaced by a new model and then it makes you wonder if that model isn't also going to be replaced so then you never really know if any given model you have at any time is going to be the correct one. Disproved to what extent? Well, I mean, it's not really a contested issue. Einstein disproved Newton because Newton tried to demonstrate universal gravitation and came up with a series of equations to calculate how things move around. And Einstein showed that the way that they move around is relative to time, so that things will actually be different spatially depending on how fast something is going and time will be different depending on that different perspective. I wouldn't exactly say that he's disproved the equations in themselves. I think he's he's prevented Newton from keeping those laws universal as you said. So he's he's made them them relative, but they still work in the the scenarios that that we use them in in high school physics and some other scenarios that that they're they're still usable they're still i i I don't think um it really affects me or the way that those things have been used even knowing that that a lot of it is relative i think that that knowledge is is there anyway in physics so you know that for example your weight is always relative to what planet you're on these universal laws or whatever, even though they're not actually universal, I think that it's okay for me personally because very rarely will I get to a point where they won't work up or they won't match. These theories and schools of thought being replaced by other theories and schools of thought, that is supposed to be what science is. If something shows up to be untrue in even one circumstance, then it's completely dropped and you find something new that accounts for everything that we know. And you keep testing things again and again and again. And if you find even a single flaw, you do something different. You have to get it until it works in all situations. And you'll probably never get that. But you just keep trying. And 
that's why we replace theories with other theories because as new information comes in we have to account for that new information and we have to make new theories how much would space weigh if you weighed it on a scale <laughs> <laughs> talking about science gas I'm talking about that as well <laughs> that's pretty good I heard that some spiders eat their own children weird stuff good reason not to like spiders a couple weeks ago I heard from someone that visible contrails left from airplanes are a sign that it's about to rain soon go figure Apparently, we know more about the moon and its surface than we know about our own ocean floors, which is pretty interesting. I also heard somewhere from someone that you will actually feel much warmer wearing a hat, gloves, and no jacket than you would just wearing a jacket and no hat or gloves. Science! I heard Steam was a real mean dude. Susie was cooking rice the other day. She said when she took the lid off, steam came right up to her and burnt her arm. Why would steam be like that? I mean, I understand that they are in transition. They used to be water, then someone put a flame under them. That just boiled them up. I saw steam later and they had cooled down. Must just have something to do with the chemical reaction, the time when they were shifting from water to steam. I just stay away from them when they get all endothematic. Science! Gasses! Well, I heard that humans are taking all of this carbon-based stuff out of the ground and burning it to make energy. But the crazy thing is that a lot of that stuff, and maybe all of it, is made out of things that used to be alive, like plants and dinosaurs. And then burning this stuff puts tons of extra carbon into the atmosphere that is not supposed to be there, and it makes... Crazy things happen, like more extreme weather, hotter summers, and droughts. And I think what happens is that molecules of carbon and other chemicals accumulate in the atmosphere so that sunlight that should be reflecting back into space is trapped, like heating everything up. And then something about the ozone layer being depleted by the chemicals in hairspray but maybe that's actually not a problem anymore because the government regulates that now. But probably humans are going to be extinct pretty soon anyway, unless they stop being so irresponsible. Science! Gasses! In caves, when chemicals from the water seeping in from above or below begin to form solids, the paths they take to form crystals or lumps of unorganized matter are extremely close. Pyrite, for example, is comprised of perfect cubes. But a tiny change in its chemical makeup could have caused it to be much less geometric. Could have just been a bunch of lumps. 
Or so I've heard. Science Gasset! Why is the sky blue? A lot of people think of scientific questions and they usually think to ask really big things like, you know, the quantum theory, like where everything came from and how everything works and what we're made of. And it's usually, it's really hard to think about stuff like that and, you know, like the theory of relativity. But there's really basic questions like why the sky is blue that people usually don't think to ask. We know a lot about various forms of uh, electromagnetic radiation, which is the uh, spectrum from which light comes. There is, uh, you can think of it like uh, those machines that monitor your heart rate at the hospital, kind of like that, like waves up and down. And the closer the crests of those waves are together, the more intense the radiation is, and the farther apart they are, the less intense it is. And that radiation comes from, well, just about everything, actually. We're being shot with all kinds of everything right now. But we can only see with our eyes a very small portion of it, and that is the visible light portion of the light spectrum. And it goes from, from least intense to most intense. It is radio waves, of which microwaves are a part. There's infrared, and then from there it goes to the visible spectrum which goes the various colors themselves have different levels of intensity which is why we can differentiate between them with our eyes we sense the different levels of intensity and that goes red orange yellow green blue indigo and violet which is commonly put in acronym from roy g biv after that we have ultraviolet and uh than x-rays and gamma rays, and gamma rays being the most intense. So the light portion of it, the part we see is the Roy G. Biv. And uh, why the sky is blue is because as the light enters our atmosphere from the sun, the more intense forms of light smash into the particles in our atmosphere, the uh, nitrogen and oxygen and all the various other gases in our atmosphere. And so the uh, more intense forms of light, you can kind of think of them as being uh, closer together or more tightly bound, I guess, is a good way to think of it. And so because they're so close together, they just smash into the uh, matter in our atmosphere and are scattered all about. While the lesser forms, like red, are diffuse enough to just come through. Oddly enough, though, you'd think, well, if the more intense forms of light are being scattered, then why isn't the sky purple? Because purple is the most intense light that there is. Why is it blue and not indigo or purple? Because they come after blue. It's actually interesting to note that that is because of our biology. Humans have evolved to better see the green and yellow portion of the light spectrum because that's what would have aided us on the African plains, you know. Our food is going to be green or yellow. Uh, the surroundings are mostly going to be, you know, tall yellow grass or a green forest area. So it makes a lot of sense that we would be able to discern better 
yellows and greens than you know purple you don't you're not going to see a lot of purple out there so it actually pulls it back a few shades and so instead of the sky being purple which it actually is we see it only the blue portion because our eyes can see blue better than it can see the violet and indigo shades that are actually what the sky looks like drop the signs get, 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 get. i'm drop the signs get, 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 get. i'm drop the signs the unified field theory right now in science there is a lot that's of course trying to be discovered at the moment but one of the main things especially in physics is creating a unified field theory or a theory of everything and that really just consists of one theory that can account for all other theories in a given space or on a given object which sounds it actually sounds pretty easy but it is very far from it uh, with this theory we would be able to calculate any event that would occur in any time at any place which sounds like you could predict the future but you really couldn't it doesn't really work like that but if you said this is happening here and this is what it's like you would be able to tell exactly what's going to happen which is pretty pretty awesome not to mention it explains you know everything so uh, but the, the biggest problem with that is you have to combine a lot of theories in one space, which doesn't always work very well. It's happened before, combining uh, the theory of electricity and the theory of magnetism into electromagnetism. That worked out pretty well. And then combining the theory of electromagnetism with the quantum theory begat the theory of electrodynamics which is also extremely helpful. But right now, they're having a lot of trouble combining the theory of gravity, Einstein's, with uh, the quantum theory. We need a quantum theory of gravity, and it's just not really working that well. There's a lot of equations and a lot of concepts that have to fit together that are very hard to fit together. And so scientists are trying all over the world to come up with this unified field theory and they're just having a lot of trouble figuring out how gravity works on a quantum scale, which is just a very, the smallest scale that there is, actually. Just things you can't even comprehend, they're so small, and how gravity works and interplays with those concepts. And it's very hard, and they're trying to do it, and I hope they definitely get it done. And that's the unified field theory. Or you'll be another sucker. Miss it in action. You hate to hear it. You'll learn to love it. My smoking rhymes, you'll always think of it. I eat them seeds up like a pack of hungry lions. So step up my way. I'm dropping signs. Get, 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 get. I'm dropping signs. Get, 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 what are we made of? Humans, of course, are composed of many elements, a lot of which are in very uh, nominal amounts, but a lot of other elements are not. We are made up chiefly of, well, water, which is hydrogen and oxygen. We are vastly composed of hydrogen, because there's more hydrogen than oxygen in water, and we are also composed of 
nitrogen and carbon, of course, carbon-based life forms. A lot of other things, too, a lot of metals that we need to function properly. But where do they all come from? They actually all come from the same place. We all are made of the same matter, essentially. And even the same matter that is, you know, in the chair you're sitting on or even that you're looking at in the air is the same matter that's in you, which really highlights how unique we are and not that, oh, look at us, we're so amazing and we're made of awesome stuff. We're not. We're made of the most common stuff in the universe, actually. But it is the beauty in how it's put together that really illustrates what we are and just the way that all of this has come together so wonderfully, actually, to create you and me. It all came originally, of course, from stars. There was just hydrogen that clumped together enough to become so hot and so dense that it started, the atoms started colliding together in nuclear fusion. And this created, of course, vast amounts of excess energy, but it also combined lighter elements, the hydrogen, into helium. Then the helium would fuse together and form the next heaviest element, and so on, and so on, and so on. But stars can only fuse to the element of iron. That's the farthest they can go. After they fuse everything, you'll get a core of iron, and then it actually costs energy to fuse iron into anything else, so they can't do it. And so they slowly, over time, build up a core of iron. And then when they can no longer support it all because of the massive energy it takes, they will eventually die. And big enough stars, the stars that produce iron, will die in a very vicious and violent explosion that is a supernova. And in that supernova, even more elements will be created because of the massive force it will actually be able to fuse that iron into even heavier elements like uh, magnesium and and copper and stuff and gold and silver and so a lot of the you know the gold on your ring you can think about was made in a supernova explosion which is pretty fantastic very fantastic and it's just really wonderful to think about everything just started out as hydrogen and then here we are it's really quite amazing Okay, so I am interviewing my father, Curtis Holly, and he is going to explain a little bit about what he does in the medical field. Uh, currently, I work at Cook Pharmaca LLC. It's a Cook medical company. Uh, started about seven years ago, and it's uh, two parts to the company. Um, drug substance, which manufactures monoclonal antibody drugs, and the other part is drug product, which um, is a filling section of the company that does formulation, fill, finish of the drugs that we manufacture. How did you get into the position that you are now to be able to do what you do? Well, I've been in this business now for 20 years, and I started out... Um, in service, worked at Lilly Pharmaceutical in Indianapolis, and uh, over a 20-year span, just worked my way up from service to manufacturing to 
lead operator to a technician to supervisor, and currently I'm a bioprocess engineer. So tell me, are you good at science in school? I had very little science in school. Uh, I've always been one to catch on quickly. Um, so I learned by trial and error, and uh, it took 20 years to get where I'm at, but I feel I'm good at my job, and uh, a lot of other people seem to think, think the same thing. So can you tell us a little bit about all the science that goes into your everyday job? Well, on the drug substance side, we grow and manufacture a uh, protein that is found in the body naturally, but for some reason your body does not produce enough of it. A uh, monoclonal antibody is what we produce at Cook, and it starts out by cloning a genetically engineered Cho cell, which is a Chinese hamster ovary cell. They genetically change it uh, or add to it so that when it grows in size and divides, the genetic alteration is in both cells after it divides. The alteration is so that it produces a protein that we want for a medicinal value. After we produce the cells or thaw the cells, they go into what's called a bioreactor, add a stimulant to it that basically irritates the cell so that it produces the protein we want. I guess you can look at it as if someone puts salt in your eye, it irritates your eye, your eye will water, and when your eye waters, it's the same as the cell being irritated, producing a protein, and what would be the water coming out of your eye is the protein that cell is producing, and it's secreting it into the solution it's floating in. So timing can be very important in your job. Could you explain what is important in the timing of the procedure? On the growth process, naturally we have to keep it at uh, 37 degrees Celsius, which is body temperature, 98.6. You have to continuously feed it oxygen until it it reaches its uh, full state of protein production. And then after uh, the cells are removed, and for purification, it has to be done as soon as possible. It's a protein in a solution. It's at room temperature most of the time. Uh, There are intermediate steps where we chill it to 2 to 8 degrees Celsius, which is just uh, barely above freezing. It has to be uh, purified as quick as possible, similar if you'd look at it as a steak or a piece of meat laying on a counter. No matter if it's cooked or it isn't cooked, if it lays there long enough, it's going to spoil. Well, this protein is a protein just like a meat or a food substance, and if you don't purify it as quickly as possible, it will spoil before you're done. They don't call it spoiling, they call it degrading, but uh, it's the same principle. Here we go. Neutron, proton, mass effect, lyrical oxidation, your irrelevant mass spectrograph, your electron volt, atomic energy erupting as I get all open on betatrons, gamma rays, thermal cracking, cyclotron, any and every mic you're on, transuradium, if you always uranium, molecules, spontaneous combustion. I'm here with Mrs. Kleinow, and we are talking about how she got interested in science enough to be a science teacher for high school students. I always had a love of the human body, and I always enjoyed learning about um, the life sciences, how science relates to living things, and um, it did not come easy for me. I made really good grades in school, but I had to work hard. I had to study hard, and 
Um, I even thought about being a doctor at some point, but I didn't really think I could handle that much schooling. And I thought, well, I would really enjoy teaching about the some of the life science type topics that you learn about in medical school. And because it didn't come easy for me, I felt like I might be able to explain it better to high school students. And um, I always thought that uh, I would want to work with people. I would not be happy working in a lab with test tubes and and microscopes and things like that. I was also wondering if you come across any um, things in science that you don't necessarily feel are like like ethical. Uh, I've always kind of been good at looking at both sides of, of issues, and some, but sometimes that makes it difficult because I have a hard time taking a, a stand and making a decision one way or the other. But on the other hand, I think that is good for being a teacher because it's important to present uh, both sides. But yeah, there are all kinds of bioethical decisions that have to be made today because of all the technology that we have available. So there are decisions being made that weren't even possibilities 40 or 50 years ago because we didn't have tests for diseases and we didn't have the technology for stem cell research and things like that. Some people think that science and religion don't go together. What is your stand on that? Well, again, I, I think that we all need to be respectful of, of people's beliefs. And um, in biology, I try to point out that there are extremes on the spectrum of, of beliefs. And then there are a lot of people in the middle. Uh, there are plenty of scientists who are religious. There are plenty of scientists out there who are atheists. And um, so I, I think that there, there is room for, for both. I don't think that um, a person has to be atheist to, to, to practice science or uh, believe in science. I, I think it's important in school that uh, as teachers that we again, respect students and uh, their beliefs. And I think it's fine to to talk about that uh, religion plays an important role in people's lives and it influences their decisions and often medical choices and things like that. Um, I think the school, however, obviously cannot endorse any one particular religion or belief, but uh, the fact that there is a belief in a higher power uh, is held by many, many people. As my teacher, I think you do a very good job of keeping it neutral, and um, I learn a lot from you. So thank you very much for doing the interview. You're very welcome. Misconceptions. There are many, many of them in this world. However, I would argue that the most interesting ones pertain to the wondrous realm of science. Is the sun really yellow? What causes the seasons? Do the days get longer in the summer and shorter in the winter? Is it true that our lives would end if our orbit around the sun differed by 10 feet? 
All of these and countless more are common things that most people think they know the answer to, but are, for the majority of the time, misconceived notions. Is the sun really yellow? A lot of people think that, well, of course it's yellow. You know, you walk outside, you look at the sun, it's yellow. But the truth is that it's not. The sun is white. It's a very bright, whitey star. But due to the uh, time of day at which you can see the sun, which is the setting sun, it's the only time you can look at it, because I'm sure some people will recall that if they try and look at the sun when it's, you know, high noon, dead in the sky, it's like blinding and they can't even get a glimpse at it. But if you do try and you get maybe a small glimpse or something, you'll notice it's mostly all white light. The reason it looks yellow at sunset is because the wavelengths have to travel through more air as it hits us from an angle. And so the uh, light gets scattered some and it's mostly the uh, orangish, yellowish light that gets scattered the most, so that's what we see. What causes the seasons? A common misconception about what causes the seasons is that it is the proximity of the Earth to the sun. A lot of people think, well, you know, when we're closer to the sun, it'll be hotter. It makes a lot of sense. It's really quite a logical assumption. But if that were the case, then it would be the same temperature around the entire world at the same time. And I can tell you one thing that in the dead of winter here, if you ask the people in Australia what the temperature was like, they would tell you it was really, really hot. And that's because of the Earth's tilt. It's tilted 23.5 degrees on its axis, and this angle at which it's tilted means that at some times of the year, the um, southern hemisphere gets more light shot directly at it than the northern hemisphere because it's at an angle. It's more of a glancing blow across the northern hemisphere. And then at the other time of the year, more hits the northern hemisphere and glances off the southern hemisphere which is why, you know, at the bottom of the world it'll be colder, while at the top of the world it'll be hotter, given that time of year. And that's what causes the seasons. Do the days get longer in the summer and shorter in the winter? A lot of people think this is so because it's obvious, you know? We don't, when we're in the midst of winter, the days are very, very short, and you know, the sun sets at like six. But in reality, that statement is not very true. See, the longest day of summer this last summer happened to be June 21st. I know this because it was the first day of summer. It's when summer, astrono the astronomical summer starts. It's when it actually starts. And so if the longest day of summer is the first day of summer, that means every day after that can only get shorter. And the first day of winter happens to be the winter solstice, which the first is when winter starts. And if it's the shortest day of the year, that means every day after that gets longer. So in the season of winter and spring, the days are all getting longer. And in the seasons of summer and fall, the days are all getting shorter. Okay, so for this podcast, I thought I'd hook up something a little special, you know what I'm saying? About to drop some science, drop the K-bomb, knowledge. Here we go. 
Look around, everything you see, everything you know Is a mole of atoms that you can't possibly fathom A network of life working in tandem Mystically, physically expanding your brain Firing synapses that translate to pain Gravity's force always sustained 9.81 meters per second Constant pressure that cannot be reckoned with Everywhere and nowhere at the same time Quantum mechanics connecting the lines This beat is a sign of science Science, auditory emanations, explanations, nervous stations Through the nations, assimilations, all creations All creations of science Youth Radio is brought to you through a partnership between WFHB, Rhino's All Ages Club, Harmony Education Center, and the Bloomington Parks and Recreation Department. Youth Radio is produced by Bloomington Teenagers and broadcasts live every Saturday night from 6 to 10 p.m. right here on WFHB. Rhino's youth programs are free and open to ages 13 to 18. If you want to participate in Youth Radio, join us Thursdays at 4 p.m. at Rhino's All Ages Club, 331 South Walnut. For more information, call 333-3430.